Um, I mentioned the first night that um, Suzuki Roshi called mindfulness or defined mindfulness as soft readiness. And there's a kind of um, ripeness in readiness. Uh, And when we kind of maybe question what that might mean, it's like our capacity for understanding ripens. Our capacity for wisdom ripens. Our capacity for loving kindness or... um, Compassion ripens, our uh, capacity for the search for the truth ripens. There's a great um, teacher named Ujodaka in Burma uh, that two years ago when I visited him, he just said, it's very simple, he just said, um, I want to be mindful until I die. It makes me so joyful. No, there's no, no pressure in that, right? There's no uh, push or ambition or expectation. It's just that mindfulness um, makes him joyful. <laughs> it's so simple, right? You know, it's not complex. We can tend to make things so complicated. I became friends with Aiken Roshi, a teacher, in, um, a Zen teacher in Hawaii. Uh, very much my elder, age-wise. And I knew when I met him that um, I would never be able to sit with him in the Zen style. Uh, and he was very kind to me. We just met once a month for lunch and would talk. Uh, and one time he uh, teased me a little bit and he said, uh, do you want to know how to do koan practice? Uh, koans are just like a, a riddle, a kind of deep riddle that a teacher will give you and um, you spend weeks or months or years trying to answer it. You go through many series of them. Um, and I'm like, no, I'm not, this is not my thing. I don't want to, come on, can we talk? Let's talk about something else, you know. <laughs> and uh, he, he's like, come on, Michelle, you know, this is what I do. I want to give you a come on. I'm like, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> Pass the salt. <laughs> so he's like, oh, come on. And I said, okay. Let's go. And um, he said, how old is Kuan Yin? And really, I hate this stuff. My brain just goes, it just shuts down. And I'm like, I just feel like, duh, you know. Okay, how old is Kuan Yin? I'm like, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even try. I don't like like this stuff, you know. And he's like, aren't you going to try? And I'm like, no. And um, by the way, Kuan Yin is the uh, beautiful figure in the back here. Uh, she's the goddess of com- compassion. And if you look at her, she's a beautiful image. Uh, in this case, she's very cracked. And it, it, I think there's something quite magnificent in this Kuan Yin. Um, I think the more cracked and broken we get, if we withstand it, we um, are the most compassionate. So, uh, okay, how old is Kuan Yin? So he said, how old are you? That was the answer. So, how old is Kuan Yin? Whatever age you are is how old Kuan Yin is. It's a beautiful system. I'm not good at it, obviously. <laughs> but it, it's like that's one aspect of the practice. Love tells me I'm everything. The happy Sayadaw that we've talked about a lot, um, 
I, I just appreciated how out of the box his teachings were for me and um, how lively. Uh, and one time I asked him about um, his practice in his early years. And he came to this area of the Sagain Hills in Upper Burma when he was young. I, I think he might have been seven or nine, became a monk up there, um, back when there were still tigers roaming the hills. Uh, and he built a pagoda when he was older um, up on the hills. And I loved it because um, it was a like a light blue pagoda. And it, it always felt like it had a special feeling in there. I didn't know it was his when I first roamed those hills up behind the monastery we go to. So I asked him about uh, practice that he did. And he said he built this pagoda to do this practice. And it um, when you walk into the pagoda, when you enter it, the, the door that, you know, the open door, if you turned around, you'd be facing the sunrise over the Irrawaddy. But he had a, a doorway in the back, an open doorway, and then an empty space, and then these little steps that went up to this little um, Buddha behind a little um, door. So that door you have to open, and this the most um, exquisite, smiling Buddha in this, in this little doorway. Um, so he said he spent years, years uh, doing this practice. It's one of the first, well, it's the first of the four guardian meditations. Uh, and uh, he simplified that practice, reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, to reflecting on worthiness. So that really intrigued me in and of itself. It's like he just spent years looking at the Buddha and seeing the Buddha's worthiness. And then he would feel his own worthiness to be fully awake, to be a Buddha. And um, it was so incredible because that's just like how old is Kuan Yin, right? How old is Kuan Yin? Your age. Well, he was sitting there for years, taking in, looking at the Buddha and feeling his worthiness, looking at the Buddha and feeling his worthiness. And when you go to this part of Burma, it's really amazing, because if it's cold out, most people put a blanket on the Buddha. Time to put a blanket on the Buddha, right? It's good. It's cold, right? And it's that personal, a relationship. It's a relationship. There's a a poet named Saigyo that I love so much. uh, It's a uh, book I've had for a million years called Mirror for the Moon. And... um, He lived from 1118 to 1190. A world without the scattering of blossoms, without the clouding over of the moon, would deprive me of my melancholy. (laughs) I think that's maybe one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Can you imagine being that grateful for your melancholy? A world without the scattering of blossoms, without the clouding over of the moon, would deprive me of my melancholy. If you look at a lot of the translations of Saigyo's poems, you see the word tomo, the Japanese word tomo, many places, and it means companion. 
or friendship. So melancholy was his companion. Loneliness was crickets were the sky, everything. Tomo, companion. So your boredom would be your friendship, you know, your companion. Your feet, you know, every moment, it's like that's the practice. So just being with, (laughs) just being with the melancholy, just being with the loneliness, wow, you know, and we might find ourselves in some fantasy about somebody, right? And yet, um, if you look at what's really happening, we're trying to get rid of the loneliness. We we lose that connection. Um, And yet... um, it's probably one of the most important issues of life, being born. When they cut that old umbilical cord, you know, we're on our way, right, to have to cope with loneliness and melancholy. So the, rather than trying to fix, get rid of, that we learn to relate to an an emotion like melancholy like we would the sound of a bird or a cough, whatever it is. I spent eight years homesteading in northern Maine, and um, I found that the winter stars became my closest friends up there. And even though I don't live up there, it's like um, in the winter, any time I have the, mm, the, the gift of a clear night sky, I feel that depth of connection that came out of a lot of um, hardship. So sometimes when we um, go through life and we understand that the first characteristic of existence that the Buddha taught is anicca, the insight around a permanence. There's ways in which it can be um, quite softly interpreted. Almost like um, you could say that um, <laughs> a real soft interpretation of Anicca could be that we can keep threatening things at bay. So maybe we talk about the beautiful autumn leaves, or, you know, the peach blossoms, you know, gently coming down. Or uh, It's like, it's a gentle kind of change that, that we're capable of anticipating and therefore not being as threatening. And certainly we tend to appreciate that soft interpretation when pain disappears. It can be a refuge even. So that fleetingness um, can sometimes be soothing. And then we can have experiences like an earthquake, for example, which is so right damaging and so threatening to us. And it's like a, a hard interpretation of anicca or getting really sick or dying. It can be sudden or radical or disruptive. And um, I think it's very important for us to understand that sometimes we appreciate the rhythm of change, and sometimes it can feel like a rupture. And they're both important to come to terms with. 
<clears throat> probably one of the most important experiences of my life was my mom dying and um, getting sick, dying when I was a kid. And um, nobody mentioned the wake or the funeral to me. You know, we did, in my family, no one ever mentioned that my mom died. <laughs> Pretty amazing, huh? Um, so uh, we went into this place, and I went kind of off into this room, and it was an open casket. And I didn't know that was going to happen. And I looked inside, and it was my mom. And she was all like, um, you know, made up. And uh, I probably went into some kind of shock. But of course, I'm very inquisitive. So I put my hand in the casket, and I touched my mom. And, and it was like cold, totally cold. Her body was totally cold. And I was like, <gasps> you know, and I just felt like... Um, I kind of had permanent shock, like it was a kind of um, wake-up that my sisters didn't have, my dad didn't have, and um, it was very, just like the text, it was just like the Buddhist text, it was like, in that moment, I saw that that was going to happen to me, that that was going to happen to everyone I knew, and I just wasn't the same as the other kids in school, really. I mean, I, I went back to school and I was like, mm. <laughs> this is serious, you know. And uh, I don't think I really even remotely accepted it in my early years. But autumn, the colors, you know, of the leaves, I think New England is, or you know, Northeast Canada, the, um, that light, that beauty that appears um, just before winter, right? That, that impermanence, the beauty in it, is so inspiring. Uh, and I used to go to my mom's grave once in a while, uh, which is in a beautiful uh, part of the town I grew up in, um, but I've never been able to just kind of sit there and, you know, hang out. So this last October, I went uh, and I did my usual routine where I kind of go there and then I kind of walk around. And um, this year, I was so restless, I found a grave of um, a girl in my sixth grade class whose mom died at the same time I did. And she just died. So there was this new grave. And then I kind of felt that um, connection with her. And for some reason, that was just enough for me to come back. And I sat down and I talked with my mom. And it was like so healing. And it's like so long. It took so long for just that acceptance. And... It's an unconditional acceptance. So when we mention the word equanimity, unconditional acceptance means without conditions. And that's peace. So for me, this whole process with my mom, you know, has taught me so much about everything. It helped me Right then, at the moment where I touched her at that wake, it was like that search for understanding. I'm so grateful for it. You know, that search for something deeper than life or death. It's like I always had that sense that I could die any moment. I consider that very fortunate. So sometimes that the resistance to the change that happens in life, whether it's soft or hard, um, it can be so unbelievably heavy. You know, it's like the grief. And, you know, I've had my, my sister, my dad, my mother-in-law, you know, so many people have died in my life since my mom. Um, and it's always different. It's amazing. Like, I'll think, oh, 
you know, after my sister, sister died, I was like, okay, I'm really prepared now because my dad got sick, you know, and I was like, I, I got this down. I'm gonna, and I really tried to be ready and anticipate it before he even died. It was hilarious. I was trying to, you know, do that preemptive strike. So I thought, okay, if I really just step on the gas and I'm going to really avoid that grief that's going to hit, you know, when my dad dies, it didn't work at all. You know, it was like incredible how I like, I teach this stuff. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to like, you know, nail this one before it even <laughs> happens. And then it was like, Ugh. you know, of course it hits hard. You know, it's like, of course. And you can't like anticipate it because they're actually not gone yet, right? I mean, it was really funny. You know, it's like, oh yeah, like when my dad died, it was like, oh yeah, you can't like anticipate this. He's actually not gone until he's gone. You know, it's so, again, it, there's something very simple about it. But we like, we do all this stuff. It's amazing. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi says about change, nothing exists but momentarily in its present form and color. One thing flows into another and cannot be grasped. Before the rain stops, we hear a bird. So there's that ungraspable quality to life. And hence, we learn to anchor. You know, it's like, we can't say enough that that rest of the anchor, the rest of the concentration, um, you need enough rest. You need enough feeling good enough. You need to feel good enough to explore anicca. Don't ever underestimate a little bit of concentration. Mahasi Sayadaw um, taught that we need kind of just enough concentration to learn how to be with things as they are. Just enough. And of course, we, we don't learn what that is <laughs> for years of practice. We don't even know what it means, and we shouldn't have to know what it means. It's like we'll talk and talk and talk about this and that. But actually, when you're practicing, the less you analyze it, the better. I mean, like, heaven forbid you have too much concentration when sitting. You didn't murder anybody. No, really, we get all bent out of shape about anything, right? It's like, you know, because we, we kind of drop in and then we come back up into that analytical mode and it's like, boom, we're merciless. We're judging ourselves. It's like, it's amazing. We have to take such care. This requires so much kindness. Because, of course, if we understood it all, we wouldn't have even been born. We wouldn't have needed to take birth. You know, we just have that, oh, it's so hard for us to be humble, to learn. And in meditation practice, it's like that um, pure exploration, that willingness to be in the unknown, um, requires, again and again, the ability to rest. The rest builds the energy for the courage to be with things as they are. And it's, it's a kind of um, natural rhythm that mm, just deepens and deepens as you go along. Henry David Thoreau said, um, in wildness is the preservation of the world. It is vain to dream of a wildness distant from ourselves. There is none such. The most alive is the wildest. 
the breath is while. It's, it's the wind. It's called wind element, air element. Our body, our bones, it's um, earth. It's wild. Earth element, soil. <laughs> it's so funny how we think we're distant from wildness. It is vain to dream of a wildness distant from ourselves. Water, seawater, we're closer to moonlight. It's like Greg said in his talk. One of my, my first retreat, my teacher said, you know, awakening is closer to you than the blood in your veins. And it was like, bang, okay, right. But, you know, I didn't get that. It was just like, it was good to hear. But, you know, 20 years later, you know, oh, you know, maybe that I had something, you know, you, you have these glimpses, but it takes time for this to deepen in us. My first... I did a two-week retreat, and then I came on staff here three years later in 78, um, 1978. And this teacher I mentioned, uh, Ruth Dennison, um, that died this year. I went in, you know, I used to bring her food, and I, I like most beginners, um, want the practice to integrate into my daily life right away, right? Of course, you know, I, I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. And so I, <laughs> I said, Ruth, you know, I really want this to integrate. You know, tell me how this can integrate in my daily practice. And she said, <laughs> oh, boy, you don't need integration, darling. You need penetration. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I was just like, what the hell is she talking about? You know, you just walk out the door, you know, okay, you know, what, I didn't know what that meant, you know. (laughs) But if you hear my stories, most of the teachers were really hard. And they didn't explain anything. She didn't explain that. But that didn't stop me from wanting it to integrate and not, you know, and not do a retreat, right? I didn't want to do a retreat. I wanted to like be fully enlightened and leave the retreat, you know. <laughs> so that's how we are. <laughs> What's she talking about, right? <laughs> So what's hard, like you've probably tasted this so many times already, this retreat, but there's the practice that we call good practice, you know, which is, you know, a setup in and of itself. We call it good practice where there's some mindfulness, there's some energy, there's some interest, genuine. It's not that pseudo-fake surrender that we're so good at, right? It's a genuine interest in what's happening. There's a little equanimity, and it's going along, and it's wonderful. And I would call that pure exploration. And whether you're anchoring or letting go of the anchor, letting go of the anchor merely means that you might notice a sound, a body sensation, a thought, a body sensation, and get lost in thought. It means instead of just noticing a thought and coming back to the anchor, or noticing a body sensation and coming back to an anchor, noticing what's predominant when coming back to an anchor, you notice a lot of different things that are just happening, choicelessly, what's predominant, but eventually you have to anchor. But there's that longer time of exploring. Um, So anytime there's, say we call that some purity, there's there's, um, of exploration. Even if it's a few seconds, it's purifying. And it's like taking um, a dirty cloth and putting it in warm soapy water. 
And if, if you want to wash something, you want, it, you want the dirt to come out, right? You put it in the warm, soapy water, you put it around and, you know, washing machine-ish, and you pull it out and there's dirt in the water. Well, that's what those times are like. It's, it's like when what we call good practice is also, it's like washing the mind, <laughs> washing the heart, washing the body. And eventually, you know, you'll be going along, you know, <laughs> you think everything's going great. And just at some point, the energy will go down. It's a bit of a bad joke. I didn't design this, by the way. You know, it's like, we didn't design this. This is how it works. You know, this is life. It's like we go along, and then just as the energy goes down, usually something, some dirt is coming out. That's why we're here. We want to be able to see the hidden fear. We want to be able to see the hidden aversion. Right? (laughs) But when it happens, we're like, well... That's not why I came here. I came for that good stuff. I want that good sitting back, right? I don't want the fear to come up. And so we fight it. We fight it because we want the good stuff and we don't want the purification. And the more we practice, that's the beauty. (laughs) Keep you guys going two weeks. The beauty of a two-week retreat is you cannot avoid that. Thankfully. You've been through it. You feel like you've been through a <laughs> ringer washing machine, you know, and, and that's good. And then it'll, you'll get sleepy. And then you're like, that's like the only rest that's possible at that point. You've been fighting the hidden thing that's coming up, and then you get sleepy, and then you get mad at yourself for being sleepy. It's so, you know, I mean, it's unbelievable, right? It's like, We're so hard on ourselves. But for me, over time, as I started to understand the practice, this particular way of um, understanding how the practice works, that's integration. Because it's all around understanding. The more you understand it, the less you fight it. The less you fight it, the more energy you have. And I know over the course of my retreat life, if that, if there's, if I'm, you know, I, I might have higher energy retreats. If I have another lower energy retreat, it's often because I'm going into a deeper, harder layer. And it's, it's, it's just. Um, sometimes I think of it like the heart center has layers of enamel, and that you know, it's like this. It you want to take a wire brush, right, and just kind of wire brush it all off, but it, it's, it's um, slower than that. So the times of wildness, when we let go of the anchor, um, it's really where you're letting um, the unknown thrive. It's so beautiful. It's, again, that quiet emergence of life itself. It's like that thriving, that vitality of aliveness. That's, that's always there. Thoreau said, Silence alone is worthy to be heard. Silence is of various depth and fertility, like soil. I think that's amazing to call silence soil. And that it's a kind of fertility. You know, it's part of the greenhouse we put ourselves in at a retreat, that fertility of silence and that that possibility of quiet emergence um, where in that thriving of the unknown, insight will happen inevitably. Uh, Srinazar Gadara in the book I Am That said um, it's affectionate awareness that brings reality into focus. Uh, 
affectionate awareness brings reality into focus. And sometimes that soil of silence, it's like you can actually receive it and let it infuse your body. The soil of our body infused with that silent soil. it's, It's like, how old is Kuan Yin? Or you let the compassion infuse your whole body, mind, heart. Or you let kindness infuse your whole body, mind, heart. That's the penetration. Srinazar Gadada was asked, how do you deal with people? And he answered, well, why make plans and what for? Such questions show anxiety. Relationship is a living thing. Human relationship cannot be planned. It is too rich and varied. Just be understanding and compassionate, free of all self-seeking. There's that wildness, right? It's, it's too rich and varied to be planned. And yet, you know, it's what we tend to want to plan the most. You know, we make objects out of everything. <laughs> you know, so when you see, like, how much expectation you have of yourself and agenda, And in the practice, you learn that it's the expectation that kills connection. And I don't say that lightly. I I mean it. Expectation kills connection. Expectation, agenda kills connection. And so, but it's the same in any relationship. You know, for many years, you know, I always preferred to see some kind of special bird like a hawk or a whatever, you know, an indigo bunting or, you know, whatever, whatever. And, you know, robins, you know, they're just robins, right? Um, but, you know, over time, the practice heals that. It heals that sense that, you know, a robin isn't worthy of connection and a lot of connection. And this year, when I was just in British Columbia, you know, there are some robins around, but there's that conditioning to walk by them. And I was, I realized that, you know, how um, actually each being is unique. And so there was, you know, a few robins that hung out around where I was staying, and I started to kind of pay attention to these robins, and they're all very different. You know, they're each very unique. Um, and then I realized, well, they must be doing this with us. You know, it's like I'm just some generic human, right, that's walking by. <laughs> it's, like, it's true. They probably like, oh, there goes a human, uh-oh. You know, and it, it's just like there's no connection when we do this, that each being is unique. And we are. It's, I have a friend who had a dog for like 20 years, and her dog died. And she was closer to this dog than any human being. And um, people kept saying to her, uh, you know, because she was so sad, people kept saying to her, well, when are you going to replace your dog, right, with another dog? And she would be like, well, not right now. <laughs> you know, like, that's not yet. And it took her a couple years before she wanted to get another dog. You know, and that attitude, you know, just, oh, yeah, you're just going to replace it with something else. It's just not how it is, really. And just all the ways that we do this, I have, you know, I mentioned I have these three feral cats, and there's a mother uh, that had the two daughters, and I had them fixed. Um, And... um, the, there's many feral cats. Uh, there's like kind of down the road, maybe 20 miles. There's thousands either way, like thousands of feral cat colonies, you know, in the feral cat colonies. It's a pretty, it's warm there, you know, so the winters don't kill the feral cats off there. Um, 
So that one of the, the two daughters, the mother raised them to be even more afraid of humans than she is. I don't know why, but she did raise them that way. Um, and I saw her train her kitties to be afraid. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty interesting. So when I opened the door in the morning to feed the kitties, um, this one cat looks at me like I'm a weapon of mass destruction. Really, you know, and it's, it's amazing what a teaching it is for me, because, okay, three years went by, and I'm like, I can't accept that she's still that afraid of me. And it's such a good teaching on unconditional acceptance, because sometimes I'll be like, why? Why can't you see? I'm not like going to kill you by opening the door and feeding you. But she just looks at me like, just like I'm a monster from outer space. It's amazing. And it doesn't change. Um, and then I start paying attention. And, you know, the mother has gotten more friendly and her sister has gotten more friendly. And um, So I had this whole story about this cat. Um, her name is Ashburnham after the uh, town of Ashburnham in Massachusetts. Um, so Ashburnham, um, I had this idea that she didn't have any friends. <laughs> and I like, you know, I do self-retreats at home and I start getting into that yogi mind like, you know, oh no, she doesn't have any friends. <laughs> projection, right? But one night, I, you know, I woke up, and you know, I'm on self-retreat, and I went out and walked along the house. And we have these big toads in Hawaii called bufos. We call them bufos, but they're these gigantic toads. Um, and so here it is, two in the morning, I'm going along, and she's sitting there with this bufo. Like, well, I'm like, well, I've been worrying about you for years, right? That she doesn't have a friend. And she has this friend. And so I... <laughs> I'm like, you know, horrified that I was worried about her for years. But then um, I kind of walked away. And I just sat there for like over an hour. And they just sat there. Like, they just hung out. You know, I went to bed, right? <laughs> Finally, it's like, wow, but you know... We miss a lot, you know? You know, we we just live our lives and we get these ideas about things. And I love how, you know, life teaches us over and over again. If we pay attention, how amazing it really is. You know? It's amazing. So we say human relationship cannot be planned. But what about all these other things that are going on, right? I mean, today, when I walked back to where I'm staying, I looked in the Gaston Pond, and there was this huge snapping turtle and this teeny tiny little painted turtle. And they were hanging out together, right? It's like, that's amazing. We don't know so much. We think we know so much. There's a book called um, A Story as Sharp as a Knife. And it's a classical Haida Gwaii myths. Haida Gwaii is the uh, native name for the Queen Charlotte Islands, the First Nations people in Canada. Um, so Haida Gwaii is the name for the Queen Charlotte Islands. And this uh, man named Robert Brinkhurst has translated uh, these myths from their tradition. And these myths were written down just phonetically by a man named John Swanton in um, October 1900. So he didn't write them down um, in the original language. He didn't know it. But he heard um, this myth teller who was blind, and he would write everything down phonetically. But it's never been translated into English before. So, 
In the introduction, Robert Brinker says, So it was that in October 1900, wholly unprepared yet fully equipped, John Swanton stepped into a world in which dogfish, geese, and killer killer whales are bearers of the heart's truth. bearers of the heart's truth, as well as potent agents of creation, guides, and escorts through the maze of space and time. Tomo, companion, friendship, sky, deer, mosquitoes, ants, bearers of the heart's truth. So we tend to... um, miss so much because we tend to be thinking in terms of um, human. We, we think in human terms rather than in connections. So the mindfulness practice really can help cure that because the getting a relationship with breath as wind or getting a relationship with your body as earth or water, uh, that how old is Kuan Yin, or worthiness, worthiness, all this breaking down the barriers between us and anything else is is so critical between us, between humans and non-humans. So in one of the stories that I like a lot, um, there's a class of beings, of spirit beings, called canoe people, and they um, circumnavigate the islands up there in all seasons, all weathers. And they can come ashore whenever a shaman provides them a route. So these ten uh, spirit beings are in canoes and they're on their way uh, to the human world. So this is what is said. Then they set off, they say. After they traveled a ways, a wren sang to one side of them. I'm going to read that again. Then they set off, they say. After they traveled a ways, a wren sang to one side of them. They could see that it punctured a blue hole through the heart of the one who had passed closest to it, they say. Can you imagine hearing a bird song and feeling that it punctured a blue hole in your heart? But you know it does. You know if you really hear it, you hear a, a songbird, a really hear it, it will puncture a blue hole in your heart, you know. And it, it's so tragic when we miss it, that we could have one moment in life when we get this, how important it is, that connection, the connection, the connection, and the worthiness. We know, you know, that... Um, any connection with a being will save our life. If you look at how did you make it through your life, well, look at who are the beings that actually helped you along. And it's spiritual friendship. You know, the the Buddha taught, you know, Ananda said to the Buddha, how much of the spiritual life is friendship? And um, the Buddha said, well, what do you think? And he said, 50%. And of course, that was the wrong answer, right? That's the whole way we get taught in the old way. Oh, no, Ananda, he said, no. 100% of the holy life is friendship. 100%. Can you imagine doing this alone? We couldn't do it.
a wren sang to one side of them. They could see that it punctured a blue hole through the heart. So learning that other beings can um, be a bearer of the heart's truth for us is so important, or it's such a lonely world. I would have missed Ashburnham and the Bufo hanging out together, and what a loss. What I'm trying to say is that you can learn everything right around your neighborhood or your home or your apartment or inside or outside. So when I'm home, when I can, if I get to be home at sunset time, the three feral cats, they like to watch the sunset with me. Who would have ever guessed that, right? That's weird. But they love it. Um, so I, if I, again, they miss it. If I come home at dark time, if I have to go out, they're so sad. Um, they love sunset. And so it was, this has been going on for some years. And I look forward to it. And uh, I walk, it's just a little, you know, this is, I say I'm going for a walk. And it's like a few steps down the driveway. And it's gotten so that, like, I really kind of want to go for a walk. But it's either go for a walk or be with the kitties, you know, watching the sunset. So it's become this ritual, you know, when I'm home. And um, recently I was sitting there and I was like, I wonder why they like this. And this is what's so interesting about life. It took me again three years to ask myself, I wonder why they like this. And so I went and I Googled. Um, I'm not recommending this till the end of the retreat if you're wondering something. But I googled, um, do cats see the stars? And uh, there was one, I had to search a bit for this. But um, so it said, I got my answer. It said that humans may see up to 6,000 stars. Cats can see up to 40,000. And owls, over a million. They, they're out there seeing, I can see up to 6,000, right? They can see over to 40,000. No wonder they're like that, right? You know? <laughs> Really, it's like, who would ever know? But you know, they love it. And of course they love it. Well, who wouldn't love seeing 40,000, you know, over my mirror? <laughs> Six, you know? And now I know why they like it. So simple, but so profound, right? Life is so full of wonder. And boy, I have to say, the thing I miss the most about retreats is just that... Um, you might go through days of like, rah, you know, and then something happens. And you can just feel so grateful for some connection with yourself. Like, oh, maybe one had a connection to, oh, a version. I know how to be with a version. I understand its relationship to unpleasantness. It's like that wildness, not feeling far away from the wildness. It's, we don't have to go, you know, up to some remote place to find wildness. It's closer to us than the blood in our veins.
at the uh, end of the Buddha's life, it said that you will hear that one of the last thing he said was um, strive on with diligence. Um, and so there was a period when I was in Burma one year where I asked a few people, the Sayadaws that I feel connected with, um, how they would translate that. And the two Sayadaws I asked um, said the same thing. They said they would translate that as um, the fulfillment of remembrance. Really different, right? Translation is everything. So strive on with diligence can feel a certain way, but the fulfillment of remembrance. So if you know that the beginning part of a moment of mindfulness is recollecting the attention. It's sometimes translated as recollection. And it's, it's the beginning part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering to be here. It's recollecting the attention. Where did it go? Lord knows, right? The attention just, it's so fickle. Yet, it's like that. It doesn't matter that it went off. What matters is that you recollect it. So the fulfillment of that is what we would call awakening. It's beautiful. It's so simple. When I, um, I want to be mindful until I die, it makes me so joyful. It's that remembering to be here, remembering to be here. It's that beautiful and that simple. We can do that. We just get our life back whenever we remember to be here. It can be that simple. And that less tragic. (laughs) I'd like to end with a poem by um, Anna Akhmatova. As I'm getting older, I like things that people do when they're old. So she wrote this when she was 74. And I I like that a lot. (laughs) Still older than me. (laughs) By the way, I have a hot tip for when you start getting old and you don't want to see the wrinkles in your face. I figured it out. See, all this I learned at home. Um, The light went out in my bathroom. (laughs) And I was like, wow. And so I put a low wattage bulb in my bathroom instead of that high wattage bulb. And I look great. I mean, I I don't need all those creams. (laughs) So just know, you know, I'm on top of this. And then pretty soon I won't be able to see it. <laughs> I can turn the light back up. Yes, but for now it's working. <laughs> so this is, okay, she, was, she wrote this when she was 74. It's called Native Land. She's referring to a place in Finnish Russia. This land, although not my native land, will be remembered forever. And the seas, lightly iced, unsalty water. The sand on the bottom is whiter than chalk. The air is heady like wine. And the rosy body of the pines is naked in the sunset hour. And the sunset itself, on such waves of ether, that I just can't comprehend whether it is the end of the day, the end of the world, or the mystery of mysteries is in me again. So I hope we all get to taste that at times, that mystery of mysteries in us again. Let's sit for a minute.